Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Our broadcast today comes from a conversation recorded in front of a live audience in which I spoke with Keith Kroc, who was the founder and chief executive officer of Ariba, the former chairman and chief executive officer of DocuSign, and the former United States Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. Excellent. I'm so pleased to welcome uh, Keith Kroc to the broadcast today. Uh, Keith has a remarkably diverse uh, a set of experiences and has reached a remarkable heights in a variety of different settings. Uh, a native of Ohio, not actually like myself, uh, uh, he grew up in the great state of Ohio, was uh, the youngest ever vice president at, at General Motors, uh, achieving that at 26 years of age. He was the founder and chief executive officer of Ariba. He's a former chairman and chief executive officer of DocuSign. Um, he's also a former uh, chairman of the board of Angie's List and of his uh, alma mater, Purdue University. And in 2019, he became an undersecretary of state for economic growth, energy, and the environment uh, in the Trump administration. Uh, and just to add a cherry to the top of what, what all the remarkable things I've already mentioned, which is only scratching the surface, uh, he has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize to boot. Uh, Keith, it is an honor to, to uh, speak with you today. Thank you so much for taking time. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Peter. I really appreciate it. I would love to understand, I, I want to cover all the things that I've mentioned and more, if I may, and I'd love to begin with your, your roots uh, as, a, as a business person and a business executive. Um, I was fascinated to learn that on your rise, uh, as part of your rise at General Motors, a uh, part of that had to do with uh, your curiosity with and familiarity with and, and experience in technology, that, that uh, y y this, this is uh, you know, at, at a time where um, technology was really emerging as an important aspect uh, in a manu major manufacturing company like General Motors. You took on a real leadership uh, perspective in, in areas like robotics. Talk a bit about those early days and that that fast rise that I alluded to, uh, some of the reasons for that pathway up, if I may. Yeah, well, I, I owe a, a great deal of uh, debt to General Motors. They put me through uh, school at Purdue, and then they sent me off to, to business school. And, uh, you know, my first job was a production foreman, second shift chassis line, uh, you know, dur during a summer in Cadillac in, in Detroit had a chance to work in the New York treasurer's office. And then when I finished business school, I had a big in interest in robotics. Back then, that was ultra high tech. And they had a, uh, a development where they developed the most sophisticated robot in the world uh, at the General Motors Research Labs. Uh, this is back in the early 80s. And I ended up putting a pitch on to uh, the board of directors at, at GM, that General Motors should get in the robotics business. And indeed we did, we did a joint venture with Fujitsu Fanuc. And um, to this day, that entity is the largest manufacturer of industrial robots uh, in the world today. And, and for, for me, that really, that really fascinated how much you could improve productivity and those kind of things. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. We had a really super young team uh, when I was the vice president. And, and uh, you know, we ended up putting GE and IBM and Westinghouse out of business. Uh, and the way we did it was we were really manufacturing guys. And we would go through, uh, you know, different plants and not necessarily sell them robots, but to do a factory automation tour. How could we help them be more productive? And in the process, we sold a lot of robots. It was a real winning formula. It was a great experience. And, and uh you know, that experience, we were selling a lot of robots out in Silicon Valley. And that's when I first kind of 
saw what was Silicon Valley was all about, which spurred me on actually to leave General Motors when I was 30 years old. Very, very interesting. I, 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 before we leave that experience today, there's a lot of worry about advances, for example, in artificial intelligence and the possibility of that taking away jobs uh, in, in a variety of different forms, whether that's autonomous vehicles or whether it's uh, you know data processing uh, of various kinds and so forth. This that, that same worry uh, was there when robotics were introduced, for example, in ma major manufacturing environments as well. So it strikes me you're a person who can speak uh, quite well about the the worries versus the realities of of these shifts in technology. And I wonder if you could just take a moment, if you would, sure. and reflect upon that period and the worries that that again uh, uh, we see echoes of today with the advancement of technology. Sure. By the way, you are so right on, Peter. I'll tell you uh, when we were, and I'll never forget, we were putting uh, the first robots into a painting lab at a General Motors assembly plant down in Atlanta, and I mean. It was, it, it got a little crazy because, uh, you know, a lot of the workers uh, we all deeply respected in a factory, they thought it would take all their jobs away and all, all those kind of things. And, you know, there was some vandalism and everything. So we experienced um, all of that. But what ended up happening is people realized, hey, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take the jobs away. You know, they were trained on some other things. And General Motors back then was great about it. You know, back then we had about 1.5 million employees. You know, it was the most powerful uh, company in the world. And, you know, so I've had a chance to see over my 40-year career in tech that productivity is what it drives GDP per capita, which is really the standard of living. So, whether it's factory automation, uh, you know, I was also involved in engineering automation, obviously with DocuSign, office automation, all of those things, I think really enhance the prosperity of the world. And the other thing that I've really come to see, learn and know is that um, if it can be automated, it will be. You know, one of the big things, of course, with, with artificial intelligence, and a lot of the new technologies is technology can be used for good, but it also can be used for evil purposes in the wrong hands. And that's, you know, that's one of the things, obviously, that I've been focused on the last few years in terms of uh, technological authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah, very. I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you further about that as well, uh, Keith. I want to talk about you just prior to, to that response, you alluded to your introduction to Silicon Valley, the magnetism of, of that area that pulled you out. Uh, you worked for a couple of successful companies, including one that was sold for multiple hundreds of millions of dollars before you uh, founded Ariba, uh, which everyone will have heard of. Uh, a, a, a remarkably important uh, web 1.0, at least as, at the time of, of its yeah. uh, founding uh, company, the first internet software company to go public in 1999. You were uh, were there at the time that that happened from it from its founding, as I mentioned, as and also as chief executive officer. Talk a bit, if you would, about the genesis story of that. I mean, this is really, as I say, yeah. such an interesting time in the evolution of the internet, the early days, kind of the wild west in some ways, and a few pioneers, you among them, uh, yeah. saw real opportunity. Uh, and, and what's particularly interesting is B2B opportunity yeah. uh, um, from this perspective as well. Talk a bit about how these the idea uh, um, was generated in the early days of that, if you would. Yeah. You know, so after we sold this company, Rasna, that you alluded to for uh, uh, half a billion dollars, um, I, I went over to Benchmark Capital as their first entrepreneur in residence. They had just formed and um, 
And then a bunch of the guys from his company, Razna, it's like, okay, what are we going to do next? Right. And the internet was just coming out uh, back then. And we, uh, one of the, the, the second entrepreneur in residence was a guy named Paul Haggerty. He was Steve Jobs, VP of engineering at Next. And so we grabbed him, grabbed some of the other guys uh, from Razna. We saw an opportunity with the internet to be able to hook up buyers and suppliers. So we, we created, you know, the first uh, enterprise application written for the internet. It was back, you know, in the Java days, you know, that was a big risky thing. And, um, and we hooked up buyers and suppliers. And, uh, uh, and Ariba, you know, we started off with purchase requisition because it was not intuitive back then. You know, should you focus first on the buyers or the suppliers? And, you know, we finally said, we believe in the golden rule, the guys with the gold rules. So we're going to go after the buyers. And um, it, it, the business really took off. We were cash flow positive from our second quarter of uh, existence. We took it, uh, it for 12 quarters in a row. Revenue doubled quarter over quarter. We took it public two and three quarters years later um, at about a $6 billion market cap. It got up to about $40 billion. And, and today, uh, $3.7 trillion of commerce is transacted over the Ariba network, which is more than Amazon, eBay, and Alibaba uh, combined. So it was, you know, it was an amazing company. Uh, it was an amazing team. That's really fascinating. And, you know, uh, you know better than most, having been an executive in multiple waves of, of innovation relative to the internet, for example, and e-commerce and digital business, um, I wonder what were some of the key learnings for you of that first wave? I, I, actually, I, I, I couldn't help but uh, think to myself, you were a very rare company to be uh, profitable early. In fact, in some, some people would have considered that a downside almost uh, as yeah. organizations were, were getting enormous valuations with you know, little more than, than, than uh, vaporware. Um, yeah. And so I, it's interesting that you took traditional you know, business and, and had the advantage of an idea that could in fact be profitable yeah. so quickly. But talk a bit about some of your insights from yeah. uh, the first wave that you put into practice in the second yeah. wave. Yeah. So, you know, it's really a good question. So that's where my experience at Benchmark Capital, which, which ended up to be, you know, one of the top VC firms and that benchmark one fund that uh, they invested in Ariba ended up to be the number one performing venture capital fund of all time. Wow. And, you know, what, what I had a chance to do there, it, we, and we called it, we looked at a hundred, what we call mediocre internet deals. And that is build the website and they will come, right? So these were the companies that were being financed and they really didn't have a business model. So, you know, taking those learnings, when we started uh, Ariba, I came up with a list of what we call the Magnificent Seven. We had seven founders, but we had seven things that would that we believe would maximize the probability of taking something from nothing all the way to escape velocity, like a public like a public company. And you know, a big one of those was you got to have a real business model uh, behind that. And also, you know, the other thing is. Uh, you know, there's about a thousand companies you get started in Silicon Valley every year back then too. And, you know, uh, 500 of them go out of business the first year and they don't go out of business because of starvation. They go out of business because of indigestion. 
because they lack focus. So one of the big things that we really uh, learned and we did was focus, focus, focus. So in other words, when you be, when we began this thing, we said, all right, we're going to focus on, on the buyer side. The other thing is, what should we uh, the e-commerce be? Direct materials, indirect. We picked indirect materials. We, we created the category operations research management. Um, that was one of the other big uh, learning lessons was that, you know, the category king gets 80% of the resources and 80% of market cap. Players two, three, four, five, they got to fight over the scraps. And one of the ways created category is to name it now. And we did. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, the guys who define whether it's going to be a category king is your customers. And you know, you've made it when your customers can sing your value proposition. And by the way, if they can quantify it, it's big. And I'll never forget, I was at uh, the World Economic Forum. And this is when you know, B2B e-commerce was just kind of coming out. And the panel was myself. And there was another company, Mark uh, Commerce One. Uh, the CEO was Mark Hoffman. And they were our competitor. They, they since went bankrupt. We kind of put them out of business. But um, there was, uh, Fred Smith was there, the CEO of FedEx. So the facilitator, the French facilitator goes, okay, what's this speak about B2B e-commerce? And Fred Smith stood up and goes, we put four cents per share to our bottom line because of Ariba. Wow. And then, and then John Chambers, CEO of Cisco, stands up and goes, we were Ariba's first customer. And then the guy, I think his name was Chuck Holloway. He was the CEO of DuPont stands up and he goes, we use, we use Ariba too. And that's why I turned to Mark off when I go, uh, Mark, you want to go next? <laughs> but, uh, but the return on investment was huge. So the value proposition and uh, is, is everything. And, you know, that was a great one because B2B e-commerce allows you to take advantage of economies of scale and channel all that purchasing as well as reduce costs and all that. And the suppliers, they love it because it makes their job easier too. And you know, by the time we got done, we had a million uh, companies, uh, suppliers on that network. So that was a real big competitive differentiator. Phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing those anecdotes, sure. uh, remarkable stories. Well, in 2009, you joined another firm that is ubiquitous now. I, I just an hour ago uh, used DocuSign to sign a contract. You joined <laughs> the company as chairman in 09, six years after its founding, became the CEO two years later. Um, talk a bit about that uh, that opportunity, how it came about, why it was attractive to you, uh, why you thought that there were uh, aspects of your past experience that would apply well in this case. Uh, talk a bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, after Reba, it's like I didn't I didn't think I wanted to be a CEO again. I was kind of uh, you know I was focused. I was chairman of the board of trustees at Purdue and all that, and uh, then I got a call from. Uh, venture capitalist, uh, who actually, he was a customer for us. He was the CIO at Cisco. And he goes, hey, Keith, I uh, want you to look at this one company. I go, hey, I'm not going back. I'm not doing that. And uh, I said, okay, I'll take a look. And I saw a DocuSign. And, and, you know, I looked at that and I said, you know, most people are going to figure this is going to be uh, a, a feature of Adobe. I said, man, we can apply the Ariba formula of creating a two-sided network and add water and stir. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I, w I went in as the chairman and 
you know, the thing was kind of taken off. And I remember they, they wanted me to be the CEO, right? I go, Hey, I'm just going to be the chairman. Uh, or I just said, I'll go on the board. And at the first meeting, they go, Hey, Keith, we need a chairman. Okay, fine. And, and then, you know, about a year or so later, they go, Hey, we want you to be the CEO. So I go home to my wife and I said, Hey, you don't want me to go be the CEO, man. This is seven by 24, you know, you're under the desk once a month, at least guaranteed once a quarter under the desk in a fetal position. Uh, you know, and she goes, all I know is you get so excited before you go to your board meeting and you're even more excited after she goes, I'd love to see CEO Keith. And that was a, that was a great, uh, that was a great experience. We, you know, with each one of these companies that we built, uh, we learned valuable lessons. This stuff is not written in a book and we do a lot of experiments. So, you know, you keep adding those arrows in your quiver and, you know, you duplicate a lot of, of the strategy. So creating that two-sided network was a big part of it um, uh, that we learned from Ariba uh, that we applied to DocuSign. Now, one of the things DocuSign we did, which we really wrote the book uh, on this is equity financing. So we looked at who's all the potential players that could get in this market. And what we, uh, our objective was to create a four-dimensional partnership with them you know, a customer, equity investor, go to market partner, or, you know, or they, they resell it and product integrations. So we did that with Google, Salesforce, Microsoft, Intel, uh, Dell, um, uh, you know, we had the telcos, NTT, Telstra, um, uh, Deutsche Telekom. And we even did a deal with FedEx. So all these guys were investors in, in DocuSign. And, you know, it really grew. The, the other big, and this is another learning lesson from uh, both companies. You know, the thing I was talking about in terms of focus, focus, focus. So uh, when we started out at DocuSign, we wanted to focus on a beachhead. And, uh, you know, beachhead is something that is small enough that you can own, but big enough you can live off it uh, for a while. And ideally, it's on the strategic high ground. And you can and you can attack adjacent markets with that. So at DocuSign, it was uh, uh, residential real estate, which was great because that unlocked a huge value proposition. All these signing ceremonies, everything like that, and it reached almost everybody. So um, you know, we, so when we went to the big enterprise, it's like, oh yeah, I just used my, I just sold, I just sold my house or I bought a house using DocuSign. I love that. Oh, we could use this everywhere. And so, you know, that took off. One of the things I find so fascinating about both the businesses we've uh, we've talked about in, in DocuSign and Ariba, you know, they're taking for granted now is these enormous successes. But it was not it was not a foregone conclusion that people would trust, uh, you know, operating in this fundamentally new way digitally. In one case, I'll, I'm doing in reverse chronology here, but yeah. in one case, signing significant contracts that yep. you are bound to without having a wet signature and, you know, all the potential for tampering and, you know, security issues, potentially, yep. at least the worry would be. And then Ariba, the movement of money. I mean, yep. the, the possibility of that going wrong, like, will I yep. even get paid as a result of engaging? And so yep. talk a little bit about, about those, uh, that, that process of overcoming that trust hurdle and yep. some of the, the naysayers, the natural naysayers who would yep. say, you know, these ideas just don't, they seem like a, a leap too far. By the way, Peter, you hit on the point. And that's trust. And that's the most important word in any language. It's, you know, it is the basis of every relationship. 
business, personal, or otherwise. You do business with people you trust. You buy from people you, you trust. You partner with people you trust. You love uh, people you trust. And obviously, you, you know, it, places like DocuSign and Ariba, I would stand up on stage and I would say, we're not in the software business. We're in the trust business. For example, at DocuSign, I'd say, you know, we deal with people's most important documents. Those are the ones that you sign. And trust is sacrosanct. And I said, you know, we may not sometimes take ourselves seriously, but when it comes to trust, that is everything. And, um, you know, when you're building a company from scratch, people have to trust you. They have to trust your product. They have to trust your processes, right? They have to trust the company. So that was everything. And so where do you start out with that? Will you start out? with you know, uh, a, a business person's most important strategic asset, and that is their trusted relationships. So the early customers uh, on board were people that we knew and we had done business before and, and we, we, had, we had earned their trust. That is everything. And so what we did at Ariba and at DocuSign, we created um, or helped facilitate industry standards. So for example, at DocuSign, we created the XDTM standard. DTM was the name of the category, digital transaction management. And what it did is it, 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 it quantified the level of trust in a digital transaction along eight different lines like enforceability, availability, security, privacy, interoperability, um, universality. And, and so uh, that, you know, that, that, that's a key thing for it to take off. And you know, back in the old days, I'd be mean, like 15 years ago, somebody said, hey, we use DocuSign. We would give them a hug, you know, because <laughs> uh, there weren't a lot of them. Now on the DocuSign Global Trust Network, there's a, mil a million companies and now a billion users. So it's really taken off. It's really become the standard. And, and you know, uh, one of the other goals that we had was, hey, turn it into a verb, right? Because we were looking at, you know, hey, just FedEx it, you know, Google it, Xerox it. Now it's DocuSign it. Right. That's right. Uh, so when you know you really made it, uh, you, when you, you, you become a verb, phenomenal. Um, I want to I pivot to your experience as uh, Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and, Envi and uh, the Environment. Uh, Keith, talk a little bit about that pivot, uh, how, how the opportunity arose, and why it was attractive to you, given your experience previously. Yeah, so um, so this was in the later days of DocuSign, and we're up to about, I don't know, 500 million unique users. We had entered every major market except for China. Um, so I went over on a two-week listening trip over to China, and I've been going there since 1981. I'm a lover of Chinese culture, history, the people, certainly the food. Um, uh, but this time it was different. Uh, I could see that uh, she's... Uh, amped up market competition had turned into a form of aggression. I also saw their drone swarm technology, saw a lot of their technologies. I talked with seven to nine uh, uh, Politburo members. Uh, they were telling me to download 10 cent every 30 minutes. And as I'm getting back on a plane to come home, I'm going, you know, the guys with the best technology win the war. And these guys don't have good intentions. And, I, and I'm thinking, I wonder what the guys in Washington know about this. 
And I, you know, I'd never been involved in politics or served in government. I always ran my companies politically neutral. And I went out a week later. And that's when I got asked, you know, uh, Keith, have you ever thought about serving your country? You know, which is basically uh, you're going to serve. I, I, and I go, that's a dream I never knew I had. I'd be honored. They go, can you move? I go, I can move anywhere in the world. And that's when they sent me uh, over the State Department to run U.S. economic uh, diplomacy as undersecretary of state. And my mission there was to develop and operationalize a global economic security strategy that drives economic growth, maximizes national security, and combats uh, China's economic aggression. Um, and so that was a fantastic experience. And, and uh, I was able to bring in 12 uh, folks from Silicon Valley, actually 11 from Silicon Valley. One, I brought in one from Purdue, the Dean of Engineering at Purdue. And um, it was a great experience. And you know, I have so much respect for the career foreign ser foreign service officers, as well as the civil service. We really combined the team. I really believe diversity of thoughts, callous for genius. And we developed three pillars in the global economic security strategy. The first one, turbocharge uh, U.S. economic competitiveness and innovation. Second is safeguard America's strategic assets. And the third one is to build uh, a network of trusted partners comprised of like-minded countries, companies, and civil society that operate by a set of trust principles. And that formed the basis for what later became called the trust doctrine that, you know, we got nominated for the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. Mm, remarkable. I, I want to talk to you. There's a lot that you mentioned there of great importance. I, I want to return to the topic of China. Again, a country you know well, uh, a country that you had visited frequently prior to having reason to do so on behalf of our government and contemplate the, the relationship between our, our uh, government and theirs. Um, you know, it's a complicated relationship as you've already begun to articulate. They are part partner, rival, foe in some cases. You, you've referred to in the past the techno-authoritarianism that is uh, a hallmark of the way in which uh, the Chinese government uh, you know, engages their own yeah. people, but also uh, other countries as well. Sure. Um, talk, talk a bit about your perspectives on the evolving role of China. Obviously, it's going to be, you know, uh, many would say the primary um, competitor to the United States for the foreseeable future. And for that reason, among many, it's, it's one we need to become quite familiar with. But, but also, again, it's kind of a there's a coopetition, if you will, cooperation in some cases, but certainly competition and something more than that uh, as yeah. well. I'd love to get get more of a thumbnail sketch of your your perspectives, please. Yeah, you, you know my perspective was uh, has been shaped over time. When I was young, growing up in Ohio, my dad had a five person machine shop. I was welding it at age twelve, and I had a chance to see how. Uh, China's weapons of mass production had literally gutted the heart of the U.S. economic engine and that small, uh, medium-sized manufacturers. I'm, I'm sure you saw that growing up in Ohio as well. Uh, you know, when I was at General Motors, I also learned, uh, you know, if you build a plant in China, you're not just giving them the blueprints. You're uh, teaching them the process engineering and, uh, and training their workforce. And then also at Ariba, we had our intellectual property stolen. You know, with those things in mind, when I went to the State Department, I saw things beyond my imagination. Uh, and, and when I refer 
to China, communist China. I'm really talking about I'm not I'm not talking about the one point two billion people that are not part of the elite Chinese Communist Party. I'm talking about the party itself. And the and they have two goals. One is regime preservation. The other is global world domination. And they have no regard for human life. Uh, these are committers uh, of genocide. And, you know, I talked about that, uh, you know, that ep- economic uh, competition. China uh, is playing a game of four-dimensional economic, military, diplomatic, and cultural chess. And the crossroads for that is uh, technology. That's the main battlefield. Now, they play with very little respect for rule of law, uh, for uh, respect for property, respect for sovereignty of nations, respect for human rights, respect for the environment, respect for the press. Um, and, you know, they, they also, you know, if, it, and those are things that we honor uh, in our country and in the free world. And those are things that they do not honor. As a matter of fact, they use it against us for their strategic advantage. So let me put it this way to you, Peter. So that maybe Ted, you're a, you're, you're a Silicon Valley CEO. I'm a China company. So if I can steal your intellectual property, I don't have to be transparent. I can use slave labor. I can use coal-fired power plants. I don't have to be reciprocal with my market. Uh, it, if I am the law or I don't have to obey the law, I'm going to beat you every time. Now, all I know is, you know, we're, uh, we believe in the free market. But when somebody comes into market and doesn't play by the rules, the market is no longer free. It's a fool's market and you got to do something about it. And so what, what we did with the trust doctrine, Peter, is we took those things like reciprocity, transparency, respect for rule of law, property, human rights, environment. And in one jujitsu move, we flipped uh, China on the back and we actually use those ideals against them. So we basically weaponized the very principles that protect our, our freedoms. And we applied that in a number of areas, 5G, we applied infrastructure, the stuff we did with Taiwan, human rights, all those kind of things. Um, and you know that's why when you said, you know, talk to me, trust is really important building these companies. That was everything. Yeah, very, very interesting perspectives. I know you also have um, a, a related geography certainly is Taiwan. And you, you've uh, been on the record previously about your own perspectives on Taiwan, its relationship with China, uh, you know, issues, issues uh, to say the least, uh, in that relationship. Offer some perspectives, if you would, uh, to this audience as, as to your, sure. your, your thoughts on Taiwan. Sure. I mean, Taiwan is a linchpin of democracy. They're a role model for freedom. They're, they are strategic. Now, to uh, General Secretary Xi of China, uh, what Taiwan represents is it dispels the Chinese myth that the Chinese culture can only live under an authoritarian rule. And he wants to destroy it. For businesses, Taiwan is key. So if there's a, a China-Taiwan conflict, this is, uh, this is devastating for companies, for the, for the business sector. It's catastrophic for high tech because it's the home of the most advanced semiconductor manufacturer 
Now, I had a great honor of being the highest ranking State Department official to visit Taiwan in 41 years. I was greeted with 40 uh, Chinese fighters and bombers flying into Taiwan uh, airspace, but we were able to do some great things uh, with them. We did economic prosperity partnership. We did a science and technology agreement. Uh, and we also onshored uh, the most important foreign company to United States national security, and that's Taiwan Semiconductor. For, uh, you know, it was the largest onshoring in history, $9 billion to build big plants, which ended up being a catalyst for uh, the legislation we designed called the, uh, you know, is a chip act, got combined with Endless Frontiers, U.S. Uh, Innovation Competitive Act. It also was a catalyst for us to bring a $17 billion plant, Samsung and Intel stepped up big way, $20 billion, because they were all, all, all these semiconductor plants were all overseas. Most of, only 12% was being done in the U.S. And we invented uh, and this is the most important industry to the in the world. Uh, so it's a national security issue. Now, the interesting thing that I've seen with Taiwan with, and also with a Russian uh, horrible invasion of Ukraine is that, you know, 300 companies had to, had to pull out of Russia because of these atrocities they're, they're uh, committing. And that has kind of woken up the business world. And it's also increased the chance for a Taiwan-China conflict. So now what I'm seeing, Peter, here's an interesting thing for your viewers, is what I'm seeing is that some of the most respected board members in corporate America are demanding from their CEO a China contingency plan in case that happens, because that will certainly... Uh, be devastating. We're beginning to see that in Europe now, too. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing at the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy is actually a request for, you know, hey, is there a checklist? Is there an outline for developing a China contingency plan? Because if you look at the effects that that would have on companies, businesses doing business in, with, or for uh, China is 10 to 20 x what you know happened to the uh, companies that had to get pulled out of Russia? That was hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. When these plans get presented to these boards, it's not like something you go around a table. Let's take a formal vote. People just nods their head and it's blessed, and then the CEO uh, will begin to implement it because those CEOs know if they begin to implement it, once that thing begins, it's too late. Yeah, really interesting. You you alluded to the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy, and would love to talk a little bit about that. I know one of the among the things that uh, you are very interested in, and the the institute focuses on, is the perspectives on on the benefits versus the risks of emerging technology. Um, you know, whether artificial intelligence or synthetic biology, five G, and it's, it's expanded beyond uh, beyond that. Uh, climate innovations. Talk a bit about your own perspective as somebody who's been so so immersed in yeah. the, the topic of technology, been a great innovator in this space, investor in this space, have thought about the implications across um, geopolitical fronts. Uh, what, what, what conclusions do you draw, generally speaking? Well, the first thing is technology must advance freedom. And by the way, that is basically uh, the mission of the Kroc Institute uh, for Tech Diplomacy. 
Because when you look at the things, for example, that that, that China does, uh, they have a surveillance state and they are taking those tools that they have perfected and exporting dictator out of the box uh, to countries in Africa, South America, Southeast Asia um, with those surveillance tools. And so, you know, one of the urgent uh, missions that we had at the State Department was to defeat China's master plan to control 5G communication. And, and 5G is not just the cell phone. It's utility grids, power systems, uh, sanitation systems, Internet of Things, manufacturing process because of the speed. And China's most important company and the backbone of their surveillance state, Huawei, you know, back two years ago in February of 2020, it looked like they were going to run the table around the world. So that would mean they could listen into everything, take your personal data, all that stuff. And both sides, the hour hit the panic button. And uh, previous efforts had, had, had failed. And so we put together a team and a strategy called the Clean Network Alliance of Democracies uh, that would only use trusted technology. We ended up getting 60 countries, two thirds of the world's GDP, 200 telcos, holistic companies. And we defeated that master plan. And by the way, the way we did it is we exposed that really nobody trusts them. You know, because I, in my first 60 bilateral meetings um, at the State Department with my foreign counterparts, like economic ministers, finance ministers, uh, you know, all that, I'd say, hey, how's your relationship with China? And they go, oh, they're a really important trading partner. And then they look like both ways and they go, but we don't trust them. And that rang bells in my head back to that DocuSign thing, like trust is the most important word in any language. So, we use that as our strategic uh, positioning. So after, after you know, our term in office was over, that's why we formed um, the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy to, uh, to actually go out there and teach this new thing called tech straightcraft, uh, which, which we developed, which is the integration of Silicon Valley strategies and foreign policy tools and based on the trust doctrine. Um, so, uh, we're doing a lot along those lines. And one of the things that we just recently announced was the global technology security commission, uh, and the Kroc Institute's doing that in conjunction with, uh, the Atlanta council, uh, I'm co-chairing it. And, uh, my other co-chair is the former president of Estonia, Christy Calulate. And, and where this is different, this is not a, a U.S. commission. This is a global commission. So we'll have commissioners from you know all the major uh, countries. And the purpose is really uh, to develop in-depth strategies for combating technological authoritarianism um, and, 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 and advancing freedom. And we're gonna focus on 17 technologies in depth, and then we're gonna integrate the strategy together. And uh, you know our, our aim is that it's a global de facto strategy around the world in terms of combat technological authoritarianism, something that's tough for a government to do. And it's really about also really driving it, uh, the private sector uh, folks as well. You know, it, uh, you know, one of the things is you, Peter, you've heard about it, you know, the, the China firewall, I call it the great one way China firewall where all the data comes in for their own malign use, things like social credit uh, system, their 
AI military application and no data goes out. And then reciprocally, all the propaganda goes out, but the truth doesn't come in. So they've kind of shut themselves off. And now they're, I mean, they're really amping up, a, you know, a lot of aggression. We could really see it uh, during the pandemic. Uh, she really, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, they've always said, hey, we want to be the world's global dominant superpower by 2049. And, you know, all the, all roads lead to Beijing. Um, but that, we saw them really amp up that aggression uh, during the pandemic. And, and uh, in, in conclusion, Keith, um, it sounds like you're making remarkable progress. Um, as, as you think about the progress that has been made and you think about uh, as you foresee where the future is headed, does it give you um, reason for optimism that uh, uh, the work that you and the Crack Institute for Tech and Diplomacy, among other institutions who are working in a comparable direction, uh, that more progress is being made, there are more steps forward than steps back? Yeah, I think so. And I'll tell you what, I, so you could imagine, so I was coming into the government, uh, you know, I get ready for my Senate confirmation hearing. I was handed three notebooks, one for every industry, at every industry, the second notebook, all the different initiatives. And then, you know, the third one, all these different regions. And I just saw China, 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 tech, 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 everywhere. And what I didn't see is I didn't see any kind of a proactive or integrated strategy. And I think now, um, I, we've got a model and, and the beautiful thing about the trust doctrine, the uh, uh, clean network Alliance of democracies, it's a bipartisan model. And it actually has provided a bridge between a Republican administration and a democratic administration. And that is so critical because the most important thing in this, in this battle against authoritarianism and to preserve democracy is our allies and and they need that continuity of policy. Plus, nothing scares the heck out of she more than a united United States. So, um, you know, obviously the, the institutes are all bipartisan. We've got Leon Panetta on board, you know, he's on our advisory board, all these guys. Um, and so that gives me hope. And that clean network of alliance of democracies, HR McMaster said, hey, this is the first government-led initiative that actually defeated China Inc. And the thing is, this is we built it to be a repeatable, uh, enduring, duplicatable uh, model. We used it as the basis for uh, the Blue Dot Initiative, which now the Biden administration has accepted uh, at, uh, or has created as the Build Back a Better World, which he was just talking about with the G7 folks and all that. So, uh, yes, there is there is hope. And, you know, I was wondering because it's like, my God. But you know what? I really believe that America has got to lead on this one. And there is nothing static about superpower status. And uh, we've got to we've got to raise our awareness in this country. And China's done an, an incredible job over the last 40 years with their uh, deception and concealment. I mean, these guys have been at war with us for a long time, but I think what I saw as I traveled around the world, putting these 60 countries on is the world's woken up to China's that three C doctrine. I think, I think citizens of the world realize that the pandemic is a result of the concealment of the virus. I, uh, citizens of the world saw the co-option of Hong Kong and how it eviscerated its citizens' freedoms. And now people have learned about the coercion 
in Xinjiang and how that's grown into punishable genocide. And, and citizens don't like it. So it's beginning to give the political will to government leaders and to CEOs. It's the most unifying issue, bipartisan issue on Capitol Hill. And, you know, and people are willing to stand up to that China bully. And, and you know, and they are. They divide and conquer. We've seen it everywhere. And, you know, we probably all dealt with bullies sometime in our life. I, I know I have. And what I learned is when you confront a bully, they back down. And it really backed down if you have your friends by your side. So that's the key. That's great. I, the last question I wanted to ask you, Keith, you've lived such a consequential life, uh, one of great influence in the business sector, in, in geopolitics, uh, in, in, you know, in the educational realm, a variety of places where, you're, where you've given your time and attention and knowledge. Um, what are some of the secrets to your success as you contemplate your own a remarkable career. Um, you know, is there is there advice you would offer to others who might wish to have a a, a, a an A plus set of experiences across such a diverse array of of, of areas as you have? Well, uh, you know, I I recently had an honor of being able to give a commencement address at Purdue, hmm. and what I talked about there, uh, the title of it was transformation through the power of trust. If trust is the most important word in any language, then transformation or change is the most powerful one. Because without that, we don't develop, prosper, or grow. You know, it, 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 if, if you're not changing, I mean, in the business world, you're dying. And the best way to control the future is to invent it. In order to change, to transform, and to grow, you've got to trust yourself. And, you know, I guess what I've learned over time is I've always been jumping in water over my head. You know, I'm like, oh my God, how did I get in this? Because how do I get to be a VP at GM at 26? And, you know, you learn how to swim. And it's kind of scary. I call it scary fun. It's an adrenaline rush. And after time, uh, it kind of becomes addicting to be a transformational leader in terms of somebody who challenges the status quo by inspiring and unifying um and energizing a team of people for a noble cause to leave a profound and long-lasting uh impact and but the key to that is trust and building those trusted uh relationships that's really what it boils down to i think that so one of the key skills i think is how fast can you build trust because in the business world even in the government world is everything is divided by time. And at the end of the day, you have nothing if people uh, don't, don't trust you. So I, you know, that's, that's probably my biggest piece of advice. Maybe the last one is, you know, sense humor is a superpower. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember my dad goes, when I was a little kid, he goes, uh, or not a little kid, I was coming back from college because I remember I was drinking a beer with him and, and he goes, uh, Keith, you ever feel like you're in a, you get in a tough situation, corner, you can't get out? I go, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? My dad was a boxer in the army. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, when you just feel like you're cornered in the ring, you're caught, and there's no way out. I go, oh, yeah, no, I know that feeling, dad. You know, it's just that warm thing. And he and he goes, you know, there's there's all, there's one way out. Worse every time. There's one way. I go, what's that? He goes, mock yourself out. You know, he, he, he was an old German guy. He did you know, didn't use words like self-deprecating humor. He goes, just mock yourself out. Works every time. And, and he goes, now, uh, don't mock anybody else out because 
you know, you're going to hurt their feelings. Just focus on you. Besides, that's not funny, you know. So I think, you know, there's times to be serious and there's times not to. And, you know, we're only on this earth for a short period of time. And, you know, enjoy it and pay it forward. I, I think that's the best. Well, Keith Kroc, I'm, I'm honored that you joined us today. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives across the remarkably diverse uh, array of, of enterprises and institutions uh, that you've been uh, uh, dramatically involved in, in founding, in creating, in building, uh, in influencing. Uh, it's been a really wonderful uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a great honor. And I wish you all the best. If I could do anything for you, please let me know. Thank you so much. I will do so.